You're listening to the Brand Builders Podcast with your hosts, Scott Dunstan and Brian Young. Welcome to another episode of the award-winning Brand Builders Podcast powered by the Dunstan Group. My name is Brian Young. We are here with the president of the Dunstan Group, Scott Dunstan, and we are here with a special guest, Brock Long, who was the former FEMA administrator and is now the executive chairman of Haggerty Consulting, has a phenomenal background that you are going to be very interested to learn about. Now, we try to plan for everything as a family, as a city, as a community, as a country, you know, even of a, even of those that don't really like to plan things still have a vague plan of how things will go in their day, their week, even maybe how their life might unfold. But these plans, they make us feel safe. They give us the ability to respond quickly to different things that might happen, even if they fall just outside the plan. Now for parents, that might mean taking time off from work to be with a sick child or for a business owner. It might mean shifting work schedules for an employee that calls in sick. Now, most of us are pretty good at handling those small scale improvisions, but what happens? if we're confronted by something completely out of the plan? What do you do if a tornado rips through your community? If a hurricane floods everything for 50 miles? Today, we have a very special guest on the Brand Builders Podcast who is somebody that is, has to do that. He is somebody that literally had a phone that the president would call him direct when things hit the fan. And I can't wait to dive into this, learn about what his experience was like with FEMA, but also how he's transitioned that into his own business with Haggerty Consulting. Thank you so much, Brock Long, not only for what you've done for this country, but what you're doing now. Welcome to this episode of the Brand Builders Podcast. Hey, well, I appreciate the opportunity, fellas, and uh, it's great to be here. So let's dive in, man. What's going on? Let's do it. Thank you, sir. So hopefully we're not going to jinx any of our listeners uh, by by having you on today. <laughs> but t- tell us a little bit about um, how your company got started. Well, so, you know, funny enough, um, it, it, one, it's not my company. It's uh, Steve Haggerty is the owner uh, of, of Haggerty Consulting. And uh, he came to me. I was the director of the Alabama Emergency Management Agency. I was think I think I was like 34 years old at the time and uh, had just gotten done with the BPD Water Horizon oil spill in Alabama. And, and um, you know, I was a, I was appointed as a cabinet level member. So I was a direct report to Governor Bob Riley at the time. So he was term limited out, new governors coming in. And uh, Steve Haggerty, who uh, I've grown to uh, really respect over my career, came down and initially said, hey, listen, I've got this small company. We need to diversify to the state and local market. Can you help us? And, um, you know, he kind of gave me the keys to the company to do a lot of business development that they had never done before. And at the time, we were 15 people. And today we got a thousand people across the country. Wow. Um, And that was... um, you know, a thousand people actively helping communities and, and private businesses prepare for, respond to and recover from disasters. And, uh, you know, we'll compete with anybody, but our, our bread and butter is really helping people understand how to navigate disasters, what they're entitled to from the federal government. How do you tie all these programs together and do the greatest good, become more resilient? Um you know, and if you look at all the money that's out there now and how complex recovery is, a lot of people don't realize, and particularly if you're in a government situation. You don't realize that the funding to fix your community actually can come from 20 different federal government agencies to fund over 90 different recovery programs. So when you have a billion dollar disaster in Charlotte, you look like a deer in headlights and uh, you're woefully understaffed. 
Um, you don't have the technical knowledge to handle all of these different grants with come with different tags, different strings attached. And that's what we do. Um, we largely help people navigate the complex recovery piece of that. But then we also have a preparedness side and uh, where we're helping people establish a true culture of preparedness within their business or within their communities. And, and uh, it's been a heck of a ride. You know, it really has been. It's very interesting. As Brian mentioned, we're thankful for for your service just with FEMA and and the history there. Um, I'd I'd like to dive a little bit into that, and then we'll come back to Haggerty. Tell tell us how you got into that world in the first place. So so funny enough, uh, I went to Appalachian State University for undergrad and graduate school, and uh, I always thought I wanted to go into federal law enforcement. Um. But then in graduate school, a buddy of mine, you know, I, I, I listened to him do a, a critique on FEMA after Hurricane Andrew in 1992. And I'd never even heard of FEMA at the time. It was 1998, I think. Never even heard of FEMA. And most people still today don't understand what FEMA's full role is and what they actually do, other than what, you know, they're told by today's entertainment news networks. But the, uh, <laughs> yeah, no you know, the uh, the thing about it is, is that uh, after that, I asked him and his name um his name's Eddie, Eddie Smith. And uh, Eddie Smith is a deputy city manager near, near Charlotte. And he did an internship in Wilmington, North Carolina, New Hanover County in emergency management. I was like, man, do you think you could set me up with, uh, with those folks? And sure enough, he did. And that's where it started. And when I left uh, graduate school for app, I had two job offers on the table. One was to be a budget analyst for the city of Asheville, North Carolina, or one was to start um, to help build a brand new program called a school and university safety program with the Georgia Emergency Management Agency. So I joke, um, it's kind of a sick joke, but I joke that every time I change jobs, something catastrophic happens, right? <laughs> right. So, so when I, uh, in 1999, took the job with Georgia Emergency Management Agency, it was right around the same time as Columbine happened. But Georgia ranked number one in the most violent deaths in schools at the time passed a Senate bill and we were really on the ground floor of helping schools understand school safety, risk and, you know, risk mitigation and those types of things. And my career's never stopped. Uh, I went from there um, on the morning of 9-11. Um, I uh, interviewed with FEMA region four in Atlanta and uh, got a job as a hurricane program specialist. Uh, I got promoted to hurricane program manager, which was largely designing evacuation plans from North Carolina to Mississippi in 2004 and Florida got hit with four major hurricanes in six weeks. And then the next year we had Katrina. So I was with the agency when Katrina happened. And uh, man, I, I decided to leave FEMA after Katrina because uh, man, we were just scapegoated for every problem in the country. And the agency still is scapegoated for everybody's problems after a disaster, you know, and we can talk about that more, but the bottom line is I left, it was a terrible environment to be in. Um, and then six months later, I got a call from Governor Bob Raleigh to go be the director of Alabama Emergency Management Agency. And um, the first year I was in office, we had more declared disasters, presidential disaster declarations than any state in the United States. And then when we got BPD Water Horizon, uh, we got uh, we had the H1N1. Remember the oh yeah, uh, yeah. the first pandemic. Yeah, we really didn't learn, we didn't really learn much from that one um, as yeah. it carried into COVID, <laughs> in my opinion. And uh, when I went out. Uh, Steve, I went to work with Steve Haggerty, Haggerty as uh, executive vice president for six years. And then one day I got a phone call from the White House out of the blue and uh, what really wasn't expecting it. And uh, took the phone call, went to serve my country. And um, when I was in FEMA for two years, if you want to you want to talk about the magnitude of what I went through or what the agency went through. If you look at the two years that I was there, if you add up all the recovery dollars that communities are eligible for as a result of 2017 and 18, 
It's more than the nine previous FEMA administrators before me combined. I had a new disaster or wildfire every three days when I was in office. Wow. So, so the, yeah. I, I we're diving into that in a minute. When you get a phone call from the White House, you don't say no, right? Like you said, and then I went to serve my country. Did they just say, you're going to be the FEMA administrator. We'll see you in two days. <laughs> like, how did that come? I, I don't think I'm ever going to get a phone call from the White House saying, come on down, Bob. But what what is that uh, like? Right, Brian, don't ever. Uh, yeah, don't, uh, yeah, side button. Don't, side ever, button. don't side answer. Button. Don't answer. <laughs> well. Well, unfortunately, it has become too tough to serve your country, regardless of your politics. I mean, you go up there, you're just going to get shot at constantly nowadays. Mm -hmm. And that's the problem our country's in. Yeah, who wants to serve? Put our politics aside and, you know, care for our neighbors the way we care for ourselves, you know. But, uh, Mm -hmm. you know, we've lost some of that. But I'll tell you, I mean, I I literally got a phone call from the White House. And um, to this day, I fully don't know how my name got put on the radar screen. But I've spent my whole career in emergency management. I'm pretty rare. You know, people can go to college for what I do now. I, you couldn't do that back when I was, you know, coming through school. And so I get a phone call. And first thing, you know, I think it's one of my buddies, you know, calling me and saying, hey, it's the White House, you know. And I'm like, OK, whatever, Brian, you know. <laughs> um, and sure enough, you realize it's real. And then the next phone call I got, you know, was uh, General John Kelly, you know, the Secretary of Homeland Security and then Chief of Staff to the President. And he said, Brock, why do you want to leave beautiful Hickory, North Carolina to come work in this cesspool I got to deal with every day? And I said, General, I don't. (laughs) (laughs) And I I really believe that that answer is what got me, you know, uh, what what caused me to ultimately get the job, because anybody that politics to be the FEMA administrator has no idea what they're getting into and they're not right for the job. Um, If you're politicking to be FEMA administrator, you're not right for the job. you know, I went into that job because I spent my whole career in there and um, I had ideas in my head of what I would do if I was the chief. And we got a we got a ton accomplished. We passed new laws and new funding streams are available now that we can talk about. I mean, there was a lot of stuff that, that we were able to do in addition to uh, handling Mother Nature, breaking our system, you know, breaking this country's disaster capability. And um, it, it was a, it was a journey. Um, I went to serve my country. I think uh, people should know, and particularly young kids, you know, nowadays is, you know, you really need to step back off of your social media platforms so that if you do get a phone call from the White House one day, um, you don't have to defend every comment you ever made on social media. And I was lucky that I didn't have to do that. You know, I'm hands off on social media. I know I'm probably old school and probably the only one in Hickory, North Carolina that is, but you know, I'm hands off on that type of stuff. And I really think that that helped me. Uh, it also helps that I'm not a billionaire. Um, you know, I'm just a guy from, you know, North Carolina that went to serve my country. And that's how it all went down. Now, now it wasn't a two days like, hey, come on up. You know, it was uh, the minute you start to agree with, hey, you're going to run FEMA. It's a Senate appointed position. And I was approved by the Senate from 95 votes to four, which I think is probably a record under the Trump administration. You know, I went in as pretty neutral, right? Um, and, um, you, you know, and it was interesting, but the, the FBI comes in and starts to look at your entire background, your entire life since you were 18, every penny you've ever spent, every penny you've ever made, every relationship you've ever had, anything you've ever done. Um, 
And then what's funny is the White House doesn't trust the FBI's background checks, so they do their own. And then the Senate doesn't trust the White House or the FBI, so they do their own background check, man. Wow. <laughs> what a, I mean, that, right, that's, a man's got a clean record. That to say shows you the mess. Yeah. <laughs> nobody yeah, trusts then, nobody. Um, but then, you know, the only time you ever get called unethical is when you go serve your country right now. And that, that goes for anybody. That's unfortunate. You know, you're going to get attacked. You're going to get attacked going up there. Yeah. So let's jump back into you. You talked about uh, for the two years you were there, the the amount of issues that you had. It's almost like the calling was like, yeah, Brock, we need Brock to be here because shit's about to hit the fan, you know? So, (laughs) yeah. So tell us, (laughs) A, I don't know what that would be like, but tell us about some of those disasters and really what you did there. And then I want to transition this into to Haggerty and what you guys do, you know, currently now. Yeah, so uh, so it's interesting. I mean, one, uh, a lot of people don't understand what FEMA does. So what they think is, is that FEMA's, you know, the, this is the this is the agency that swoops in with bottles of water and MREs. Well, man, you know, this agency is responsible for handing out ninety eight percent of the uh, preparedness grants, terrorism grants from the entire Department of Homeland Security. You know, it, it's the largest insurer in the country through the National Flood Insurance Program. So you're like one of the largest insurers. And you, you're forced by Congress to run a broken program called the National Flood Insurance Program. Um, you run national continuity programs, which um, think about this. You know, it's uh, it's a huge mission when you've got North Korea, China, Russia, all these you know global issues. Your job as FEMA administrator is to make sure that the entire executive branch of government never fails. You know, you're in charge of making sure that the executive branch of government can meet its mission essential critical functions, regardless of what we face. And that's a huge job uh, within FEMA as well, with all the, the global threats, the cyber threats and things that you see. And in the meantime, when I was there, man, um, I had been Senate confirmed. And then two months later, I got hit with Hurricane Harvey, then Irma, then Maria, the largest California wildfire in history in 2017. Um, and then you know, you had um, other events, um, Hurricane YouTube, the, 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 the strongest, and this is this is your nation's media for you, the strongest hurricane to ever hit a United States territory was Hurricane YouTube. It wiped out Tinian and Saipan, who are 14 hours ahead of us. It doesn't, you know, fit perfectly into our, our media timeframes. And there's no politics around Tinian and Saipan. They're not going to shift the presidential vote in this country. So you don't hear anything about it, right? Um, that occurs. California burns up again in 2018, even worse than the 2017. And then Michael hits Florida in 18, which is one of only four category five storms to ever make landfall in the United States. North Carolina gets hit with Florence. But then mixed in that are all these little nickel and dime disasters that you never hear about. So if you add up all the disasters that I had, the presidentially declared disasters in the wildfires, it was over 220 events. So a new event every three days. That's how busy FEMA is. But you only hear about the ones that are that are political, mm-hmm. you know. And so after a while, um, and I apologize for any background noise, man. We got some remodeling going on, <laughs> but but the uh, the thing is, is that you only hear about the ones that are really truly political. Uh, you never hear about all the great things that FEMA does. Um, but you know that, that that's kind of the story within FEMA. Um, you know, in two thousand um, early two thousand nineteen. You know, my youngest son wrote me a letter and asked me to come home and quit my job. And that's exactly what I did, man. I, I figure I get uh, I get one shot at raising my kids, you know. And so uh, 
you know, when you go up there to serve your country, man, your, your wife, your kids, they serve their country too. You have no idea what they go through uh, when you're in that type of position. And um, it's pretty insane right now. How uh, old was your son when he wrote that letter? Well, they're 16 and 13 now. So gosh, that was, I guess he was nine at the time when he wrote that letter. Wow. Wow. That's powerful. How long were you with FEMA? Like in I was there, uh, leading like right two years, yeah. two years. Yeah. Um, two years is head. But, uh, you know, during that time, we were able to pass some laws. We passed the Disaster Recovery Reform Act, which created uh, the program called BRIC. So you hear in the media now where all this mitigation money is coming out, billions of dollars to do mitigation, building resilient infrastructure and communities. And that was the program that we created because I'm a believer that you got to prevent these things up front rather than building a bigger government on the back end. And I'll tell you, you know, I'm not a bigger believer. I, I don't believe that bigger FEMA is going to solve our disaster problems in the future. And it's a pretty small agency. It's, uh, you know, when you think about all the IRS agents that were just hired, like 87,000 or whatever, they're going to be hired. Mm-hmm. FEMA is 21,000 employees. Wow. But, but you wow. know, wrap your head around that. With a disaster so, every three days. <laughs> and it's a disaster wildfire every three days. Yeah. So, all over the nation. That's insane. Yeah. So, the agency really does. Um, I do think that the enterprise is somewhat broken and and it goes back to what you guys were talking about kind of when you're introducing this. Um, we've got to build tangible skills within our citizenry that do not exist on being prepared. I mean, you, you got to understand that if you're listening to this podcast, you are the true first responder for any emergency or disaster that you face. You know, if you look at the active shooter statistics, for example, a majority of these events begin and end before police can arrive. Sure. Right. So so if you're caught up in one, what do you do? What tangible skills? When's the last time you've been through CPR? When's the last time you've learned how to stop a major bleed on somebody? When's the last time, you know, you really thought about your awareness and the statistics and everything, where you're going, what you're doing? You know, and it's um, we don't have a tangible skill set within our citizenry anymore. And and I call it the 911 society where we think we just pick up the phone and everything's solved by, you know, calling 911 and that's just not reality. Um, and so, you know, we've got to go back and build a prepared citizenry and, and put a culture of preparedness within our citizenry. Like, for example, um, insurance is the first line of defense. But what you see is you've got a lot of people living in asset poverty, uh, not not income poverty. If I don't make enough money to make ends meet, it is asset poverty of I look really good. I drive a Tesla. I have I live in a million dollar home. I am in debt up to my eyeballs. I live paycheck to paycheck. I don't have three months worth of savings to my name because nobody's ever taught me financial resiliency or how to retire or invest, right? So what happens is, and I I know I'm sounding harsh, but it is the biggest problem in this country, in my opinion, right now. One of the biggest social problems that we have right now is the lack of teaching people how money works. And the, the problem with it is, and what we would see at FEMA is, is that these, these communities are getting hammered, but people who are living in asset poverty are pulling back on homeowners insurance. And you see people moving out of the north, selling their house, buying a house in Florida or North Carolina for cash. And then the hurricane or the wildfire comes, wipes it out. And they don't, they're not properly insured or have any insurance at all. And then everybody wants FEMA to fix them. And that's not what the agency is designed to do. So Hmm. You know, we've got some major problems that we got to solve through simple education that are bigger than FEMA. And so I, I often joke that larger FEMA has not solved a single problem yet. You know, so. All right. I'll stop. There. That's really no, no that's really good <laughs> advice, man. I, I feel the same way. I mean, we talk about it a lot. It's uh, 
It's it's a big issue. But but to your point about our media friends, that has nothing to do with their story ever. It's just right. blaming, 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 you know, all the time. And yeah, that gets us nowhere. Tape media. You know, I stopped doing tape media for the most part. Um, yeah. You know, I'd be happy to jump on and do live media. You know, right. and uh, but the media learned that they didn't want to do that because I would call them on the table. No, you're wrong. This is what's really you yeah. know, what's going on. And, <laughs> you know, and, and and I found that when Good I did tape you. media, when I did tape media, trying to talk about the issues around Puerto Rico and Maria, for example, why the lights were off for a year, you know, um, they would film you for 45 minutes, take one sentence you said and throw it into their preconceived storyline that was already there anyway. And so you get to the point where you just stop doing tape media. Yeah, that's sad. You know? Yeah, So sad. I want to ask you, uh, you, you mentioned something, and, uh, and I love this, is you're listening to this podcast, you're the first responder to your disaster, basically. Are you ready in that scenario? And I was you know, blessed that my father was an Eagle Scout, I'm an Eagle Scout, and I talk about how scouts prepared me for life, right? And not only that, it's it's skills that I use throughout that program every single day. Um, and it's something that's that's really important in my life. I have a four-year-old and a two-year-old son. I can't wait for them to get through that program as well. Where is the the, the lack of, of, of education on true life skills? Is it from the parents that are not teaching this? And I'm going to use an example. I was in college and I had a friend who a light bulb went out. He called the front desk to get the guy to come fix a light bulb. And I'm like, bro, you don't even know how to fix a light bulb. <laughs> like this insane. is like, what? that's an emergency. Like what? Yeah. I mean, people, they don't know how to change a tire. You can't change their own oil. People don't know how to start their car. If it dies. I mean, all of these skills that, that I would take for granted kids have no idea how to do it. It, yeah. it yeah. Wh- what are we doing? Right? Like we, we've created a society that it's always somebody else's problem. It's always somebody else's problem. Well, I'm going to call them and they can do that. When what you said was so true, like you're the first responder for not only your life, but the disasters, the things that happened to you, the things that happened to your family, your community, the people around you. I I don't know. I was just fat. And my whole brain just started yeah. running through things. I'm like, where did we go wrong? <laughs> well, we've, we've got too many generations. It's not just our kids. There's a generation of parents that don't have any skills. <laughs> exactly. Well, I'm 37, <laughs> you know, right? My friend. And that, that, that's yeah. in regards to financial financial resiliency. You've got right. too many generations that have never learned how money works. So it translates down to their kids or doesn't translate down to their kids. And, you know, and so it, it, it's really been interesting. I, I think that it's got to be solved by community groups and it's got to be solved in our education process. And listen, I'm all for higher education, right? But the college proposition that we've sold everybody, I also I scratch my head and going, man, let's let's get some of the basics and tangible skills down first. I mean, you could graduate major universities that everybody's you know seeking out and still graduate and not know how to do CPR or invest a dollar in the stock market. Mm-hmm. And you know, in my opinion, we <laughs> that's got to change. But then, like when it comes to household preparedness, if the power's out, and you remember, like where you guys live in Charlotte. 1989, Hugo came right through Charlotte. 100 mile an hour winds, 110 mile an hour wind gusts, power was out for numerous days, almost a week in some cases, maybe even 10 days. You know, the, the question is, if that if that occurs with you in your household, it's not necessarily stockpiling three to five days worth of supplies. It's how do you get clean water? How do you produce heat? How do you, and, and you can go out and buy all of these 
readiness kits and 30 day food supply, but you still got to have heat and clean water to make those work. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, there's a lot of, um, there's just a lot of tangible skills and general education has just gone out the, the window. Um, you know, and part of the problem in our society too, is this, you know, you, you know, I believe the climate's changing, you know, uh, you know, but over the last two years, if you look at some of the statistics, we built more homes in the last two years than ever before to the minimum standard of every state. Think wow. about that. Wow. So there's no incentive to communities from the federal government to do proper land use planning. There's no incentive to Charlotte if the mayor says, you know what, we're going to pass a higher building code. And by the way, a mayor has never won an election by passing a higher building code mm -hmm. or residential code. So you can sit there and talk to me about climate change all day long, but the policies and the rules that are put forward at the local level are not matching up with the conversation of we got to protect the planet. Mm -hmm. And, you know, and that's where we've got to bridge that gap as well. And, and, and I really think that on the, the financial side is why does the appraisal industry, for example, evaluate your house the same as your neighbor's house, even though you've sunk ten or $15,000 into your house to mitigate it and make it stronger, you know, with hurricane clips or backup generators or keep safe windows, those types of things. Why do they just look at the house, the location, the square footage, and not the investment that you've put in there to make it safe? You see what I'm saying? And I mm -hmm. think that some of it's not a government solution, but how do you get the appraisal industry to start valuating houses that have been built correctly higher than the ones that have? <laughs> right. It's not a government solution. I'm not a government solution type of type of person. I think it's grassroots, just simple education and changing the way we think about some simple things. Yeah. I, you know, that's interesting. This building that we're in was was um, was built, I believe, in like the 1930s. Buildings yeah. that are built today aren't lasting 90 years, right? Like at all. And you go look at South Boulevard and you look at all the cookie cutter apartment complexes, their life expectancy is probably 10 years. I mean, <laughs> literally, and that's terrible because they're going to be, they're just made with, like you said, the minimal, you know, resources or the minimal restrictions. It's like, let's do it instead of building yeah. something that'll last forever. Yeah. Interesting. Um, uh, and like I said, it was built to the minimum standard of whatever right. the county or the state puts forward. Uh, building codes work, though. I mean, look at the Florida Building Code of 2001 was the strongest building code that I'm I'm aware of that was ever put into place. Anything built after 2001 in Florida survives hurricanes pretty well. That's wild. You know, it's that simple. But then, you know, the, the argument is, well, it elevates the cost. Well, let me tell you how much taxpaying dollars are, you know, are, you know, flying out of your wallet to fix these communities. It is billions upon billions of dollars on the back end that this country is paying for because of a lack of smart land use planning and building codes. So let's let's transition that in um, to Haggerty right now, specifically what you guys are doing. Obviously, you've seen the growth since 2011 from 15 to 1500 people, which is insane. Um, but tell us, what are you guys specifically doing? Are you guys connecting more with local government? Are you connecting with the private sector? And how can people that are listening to this podcast not only understand what you guys do, but connect those dots as well? Yeah. 
So, so we work both on the public and private side. And again, you know, Steve, Steve Haggerty is the owner of this, you know, his, this company was his vision. And um, he is a very passionate individual who, who also served as the mayor of Evanston, Illinois. So he's a public servant at heart, but he also runs a very successful business. And I do believe that, you know, when I talk to my kids, I tell them they should serve in government and in private business. I mean, understanding both sides of that makes you a better leader down the road. Right. And, you know, and so when um, when I went to work for Steve, you know, we really saw a niche and Steve saw a niche that people don't understand the, the, the financial disaster management aspects of being hit by a disaster. So, you know, for example, Kentucky just got hit with the biggest flood, probably the largest disaster the, the state's ever seen. But you, you probably hadn't even thought about it since you saw it in the news a couple of weeks ago. Let's be honest. Right. Um, that's going to be a disaster that the federal government cuts checks to for the next 10 to 12 years. Wow. OK, so um, and when they make the news and it's big news, then Congress pulls out all stops and throws tons of money out right? From not just FEMA, but then HUD gets involved, SBA gets involved. There's all these different agencies that have different programs um, that can come in, right? So what we do is we try to set up pre-event contracts to help communities control their own destiny after a disaster, before and after a disaster, so that they're not just dependent upon advice from the federal government. You know, um, we want to make sure that we sit down with our clients to under, help them understand everything they're entitled to from the federal government, help them establish resilience and recovery um, goals in mind. What are your top three goals that you want to do as a result of going through this nightmare? We grab the money on their behalf to complete those goals, sequence the funding together, and ultimately affect recovery as quickly as possible. And Again, you know, like HUD may throw large sums of money at the city of Charlotte when they've had hundreds of homes destroyed. But what people don't understand is that sounds great when HUD comes to town and announces, you know, 100 million, 200 million, 300 million is coming to Charlotte to help with recovery housing. But it takes a year for that money or longer to come into play, to actually be utilized by the community. So a year passes. So, you know, you're helping them navigate initial recovery, then long-term community recovery, you know, down the road. COVID, we're, we're actively helping over 100 different hospital systems um, re get reimbursed for all their COVID expenses. We're helping um, communities, the state of California, recover from all the wild, devastating wildfires to the state of Florida and Bay County, for example, um, overcoming, you know, the, the hurricane, Hurricane Michael hits, um, different things. We're helping the state of North Carolina to recoup funding from, you know, both COVID, but also um, some of the past hurricanes that, that have been there. We want to make sure that we're getting them everything they're entitled to and doing the greatest good with that taxpayer money that they get. And um, and then on the on the on the the, the a different side, we've actually helped uh, major corporations, and we're helping major corporations. Some of them I can't speak about. Um, but major social media corporations or um, major car manufacturers or, or uh, major power providers to actually establish a true culture of preparedness within their, their organizations. We do, you know, church, school, university safety, um, you know, helping people understand how they're going to respond to active threats and, and different things. Um, 
you know, what are the low to no cost mitigation strategies you should implement to keep your facilities safe versus the ones that are out? And, and I'll give you a statistic, for example. Most of the businesses, if anybody owns a business, you know, a lot of people right now are thinking, well, I need to build a fortress. You know, I need to really put in, you know, metal detectors at schools. I need to do these things, you know, to, to fortify the safety from an active shooter event within my community. But if you look at the statistics, you know, over 80% of the time, if somebody's going to come in and, and actively cause harm in your, in your business, you know them, you most likely know them, have had a past relationship, they've been a previous employee, or they've been a terminated employee, or they've had some type of indirect relationship to your business. You know, and so a lot of the mitigation tactics that, that big companies or small companies are implementing really aren't effective. You're probably only keeping about 18 to 15 percent of the real threat out of your facility. You know, a lot of these shootings are not just random acts of violence in, in some cases. You know, so we really help you know our, our, our constituents think through proper levels of mitigation and strategies and and, and uh, helping them understand you know, how to respond and then re quickly recover. Uh, when when they go through these things, fascinating. Yeah, what what is your day to day uh, looking like uh, with with your new role here? Uh, day to day, so yeah, as executive chairman, um, I am really more about I'm I'm more on the business development side, but also the the the, the strategic uh, way forward for our company. I mean, you know, in our in our field, the money that. Congress puts out, whether it was the American Recovery Plan Act or the CRF funding or the, you know, the Infrastructure and Jobs Act funding that comes out or now this new, um, you know, Inflation Reduction Act that comes out. Our goal is to understand in those bills, what's the what are the funding streams to help build community, you know, uh, resilient communities and then help our clients understand what they can have access to as a result of that. Right. So. And the Infrastructure and Jobs Act funding, for example, every state's entitled to funding to build um, energy resilience, you know, plans, you know, like uh, grid security, those types of things. So um, there's also cybersecurity mitigation aspects of the funding that's been put out there. So we really want to identify the funding streams that are there and then let let our clients know what they may potentially, whether it's a government or private client, what they're actually entitled to, because a lot of people aren't tracking this. Nobody reads the ins and outs of these bills and these programs as they're put forward, you know? Um, so it's a lot of strategy. Uh, it's a lot of business development, opening doors to, um, you know, areas where we want to expand our, our service offerings as well. Uh, but, but I'll tell you, um, one of the hardest things to do is manage growth. And we, we've seen uh, extraordinary growth and it's, uh, and, and I'll tell you why. Um, one, because the needs out there, right? You know, a lot of communities are going through it, but I also believe that we hire the right people. Um, we, we, um, you know, it's not that we're just throwing something out on LinkedIn or jobs indeed or whatever else to go after any candidate and collecting resumes and throwing them out in the field. I mean, we have a pretty exhaustive process of making sure that we are bringing in, you know, super smart, you know, self-driven people that are going to do a good job that we can mold over time. And, um, you know, and I think that we've been able to do that. We build great, you know, strong client relationships. Uh, we, we make sure if we do something wrong, we want to get it right so that we uh, can continue on to, to support our clients. And a lot of our clients, uh, like the city of New York, we've been with them since 9-11, you know, helping wow. them navigate all kinds of things, um, you know, from COVID reimbursement to Hurricane Sandy, you name it. And, um, you know, we build long-term relationships and 
that's the way to do it. We don't, we don't want to be a one-off consulting firm that does something and gets out and moves on to something else. Love that. I can't even imagine working <laughs> with the city of New York. Um, no kidding. I love New York. We were there back in September and it's kind of amazing how resilient they've been, honestly, for a city that was, you know, going from never sleeps to completely shut down. Um, I can only imagine that. Well, Brock, this has been fascinating. You know, I've learned a lot. Like I, I feel like not only what you've been able to do, you know, while serving the country, but now with Haggerty and just getting people more prepared and challenging them um, to really understand that they are really the first response to any type of an emergency, but being prepared is the most important part. Um, so I love that. Tell us if there are people, you know, listening that want to get in touch with you, want to learn more about Haggerty. What's the best way to do that? And what's the best way for organizations to get in touch with your company as well? Yep. HaggertyConsulting.com is our website and it's 1G, H-A-G-E-R-T-Y, consulting.com. Um, and you can actually reach out to me at brock.long at haggertyconsulting.com. So B-R-O-C-K dot L-O-N-G at haggertyconsulting.com too. And, um, you know, I, I want to be as ex- as accessible as possible, uh, you know, and, and continue to do good things. I mean, we truly believe in, in what our mission and what we're trying to do is help our clients uh, respond, you know, prepare for, respond to, and recover from disasters. And I, I really believe that our services change outcomes and save lives. I love it. I love it, man. Thank, yeah, that, that was awesome. Um, like we always mention, you guys like, share, comment. This has been fascinating. I've learned a ton. Really appreciate you coming on, uh, you know, the podcast and, and, and just sharing more about your story, but ultimately, you know, what you guys do with, uh, with Haggerty and how you're making an impact. Yeah, we're yeah. honored you, you chose to spend your morning with us. That's Thank right. you very much. Yeah. I now go it. out and... Um, Get some tangible skills, fellas. That's right. <laughs> hey, I, uh, yeah, yeah. Well, th- this man's Nobody's going to look out for you like yourself, right? That's right. I, I recently just watched the most previous season of Alone, which was out on Grizzly yeah. Mountain. And the winter lasted, I believe it was 77 days. And Don't tell me who it is because I'm watching it that, too right oh, now. Oh, dang it. I'm, I should. Uh, I can see him. Spoiler yeah, I alert. Being out spoiler there. alert. I know. I, I bet you watched that going, I can totally do this. <laughs> now, well, I, actually, actually, what I'd like to do is we, we, we need to figure out how National Geographic hires us to come in and uh, pit some families together. You know, let's get, oh, how do we get preparedness in every home. Let's you know, go. There you go. That we would don't be, have to go to. Yeah, Why go great. to Grizzly Mountain when we should just go to, you know, Plaza Midwood yeah. <laughs> and, uh, you know, and let's uh, let's go to Plaza Midwood. And uh, all right, here's the deal. You know, you get all this supplies for the next 30 days, but you can't turn on the water and you can't use the heat elements in your house. Make it work. Oh my God. <laughs> Make it work. Dude, I think you got an yeah. idea right there. We might need to pitch that one. Um, well, awesome, Brock. Well, again, thank you so much uh, for, for joining us. And it, it's been fascinating to, to hear about your story. And it's cool to have somebody that's that's you know, about 45 minutes away, but, but we'll, we'll say you're from Charlotte anyways, um, be able to, to make such a big impact on this, uh, on this community and, uh, in this country. Thanks fellas. I appreciate it. And if, uh, you lose your way up the, up the Hickory, uh, let me know. We will let yes, you sir. know. We will let you know. Awesome. Until next time you've been listening to this episode of the brand builders podcast. been listening to the brand builders podcast brought to you by the dunston group with your host scott dunston and brian young for branded merchandise and apparel that makes first impressions and ones that last check out the dunston group at dunstongroup.com